Mini episode 1222 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at Sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Well, let's, let's go to the pay-per-view that you had here, SummerSlam 02. I will tell you this, and, and, and again, there were, to me, there were a lot of isolated great moments in uh, the WWF slash E in 02. It's the only year you could ever say that about because it's the year the transition happened from F to E. Uh, and, and again, SmackDown 6 and things like that. But they, there was a hipster take that I saw on uh, just when you Google WWE 2002. Somebody wrote a column a long time ago. I don't remember if it was for Bleacher Report or somebody was like, 2002 was the greatest year in WWE history. And I'm sitting there going, not even close, particularly when you look at all of the flame-out business decisions that they made and how much better it could have been but for the creative and but for the politics and Steve Austin basically leaving the company mid-year. But, you know, it was a year where it had its moments here and there. I mean, Hogan and Rock at WrestleMania, as counterproductive as the booking was coming out of that, there were isolated great moments through the year. And SummerSlam 02, I've always thought, stacks up as one of the best slam cards they had. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the best opening matches of all time, Kurt Angle versus Rey Mysterio, which at that time was a dream match. Yes. It never happened before, so that was a dream match at the time. Uh, you had Rob Van Dam versus Chris Benoit, which are arguably another dream match. You even had an, an inoffensive Undertaker v. Test match. Right. Which, you know, it could have been horrible. No, it was actually pretty good. Um, you got the return to the ring. We got the return to the ring of HBK for the first time in four years uh, against uh, his, his running buddy uh, Triple H, and they tore the house down. And then you had the uh, part of the reason why it's not there for, for me is you got you know the absolute rise in the prominence of Brock Lesnar, just going from being rookie monster to defeating the Rock in a match that you know that. My friend, that Rock's never gotten his way back from that, and the crowd at that point in time was solidly behind Lesnar. And even like you know the ongoing story back and forth between the two different brains and everything, I just thought I just feel top to bottom. If I'm going to watch a card begin again, I've probably seen that card beginning to end at least I don't know thirty times. I haven't watched it as many times, but yeah, there's so much fun stuff on that show. And I will say as well, and uh, at the risk of sounding like Smark Smarkerson. I'm going to use this guy's real name because I feel like his ring name held him back more than almost anything else. I've always felt that Andrew Test Martin was was one of the more underutilized big guys that there's been because you talk about you know being surprised on that. Man, that's a guy that could go under the right circumstances. His match with Eddie Guerrero at uh, WrestleMania 17, I mean, it's it may not be in my top three or four favorite things about that card because I love that card so much. But it was, uh, again, a very underrated match as well. 
And, and that's a guy where, and again, I know he had his demons and everything like that, and that might have played into it of why he didn't get a bigger push, although clearly he was misutilized, underutilized in the wake of the whole Triple H stuff uh, marriage thing here. Uh, he should have been a red hot baby face coming for revenge after that. But I mean, why wasn't, why, why wasn't he? He should have been the one to replace Stone Cold Steve Austin. The crowd would have just it up. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and when Austin ran over, they went the big show. I remember sitting there watching that when somebody comes out. So I'm like, why? Yeah. <laughs> and then somebody goes, must be a contract. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so many it things. Right. And and that's almost like the story of his career. All these things that made no sense, which again, none of that is his fault. I mean, again, the things with the substance abuse, yes, that might have interfered with him getting a bigger push. But when they brought him back in like 06 and 07, and they put him in ECW rather than on SmackDown or Raw, and it was kind of like, why? I mean, I, I guess at the time it was the storyline of Paul Heyman is building the new ECW but between him and Hardcore Holly, it just sort of had that cast-off kind of a feel. And I always felt like, man, this guy is being underutilized here. He should be on one of the two main shows. And, yeah, that's a guy that I always felt like was capable of better than what he was given. I, I agree with that. And the thing about, if you remember his 06 run, like, they never really mentioned that he was there before. It was almost like he acted like he was a new guy. Like, yeah. Yeah, and that's where, I mean, for the love of God, if you're going to bring him in and you're going to pretend you didn't have him there before, call him Andrew Martin or give him another name. Go the whole night. Don't yeah. call him Test again. Stupidest name. You know, a, a name that didn't mean anything in, in the course of the business. Yeah, I, I, I just, it was it was so, it was, it was so god-awful. There's just so much about the mishandling of that guy's career that makes me sad, as well as the fact that he's not here anymore. And uh, when we're... When we're looking at this, I referred to this. You had another non-pay-per-view uh, on here as well, but a Clash of the Champions match, uh, or I'm sorry, card, Clash 17. So I'm looking at it like, okay, well, Bobby Eaton, Firebreaker Chip, I see you working. Uh, Stunning Steve Austin, PN News, yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. So sure, it, it had a lot of great moments, Jake. <laughs> Was it, did I put the right one on there? I, what I'm thinking of is the one that, that opens with uh, Sting getting a gift from Luger. Yeah, that is the one. That is the one. You have this. Okay. And you have this. No, yeah. I mean, this thing. Sure, those, those matches were there. Right. But it, it, as far as the overall story, those, those would be, I don't know, the Arteste and Guerrero matches or whatever. It's not nearly as good. Yes. Well, I have it on there more, more overall just because of beginning to end as, like, yeah, for someone watching a show and watching a wrestling. I'd be like, okay, what's going to happen here? You've got the beginning of it where Sting is the ever present, idiotic baby face. Look at it right there. You can see it's right there in the paper. You can figure it 
over and goes, He, I, if you didn't mention he's just a man, I was going to. I was going to. <laughs> yeah, he's just a man. He's just, he sells rookie steam like it's the biggest thing since sliced bread. Yeah. And like, holy crap. And like, you get that moment of them winning the World Tag Team titles. You get this terrible, uh, I think it's Rick Steiner and Luger for the, uh, for the World Title. Like, yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. That match is there. <laughs> and then you get the climax of Ravishing Recruits being running to the building. Yeah. And then the next, and then the next week on TV, and then the follow-up, you find out that beautiful Bobby was actually sabotaging him because he was part of the Dangerous Alliance all along. Yes. And it was well, absolutely. When I think of me as being a wrestling fan of an entire show, it's like top to bottom. That is one of the ones that pops into my head because it's got so many names on there, so many moments. And, you know, it's got some good wrestling, and it's got some terrible wrestling. Well, I don't know if you did this on a conscious level or not. Probably not. But I am seeing a through line in your three picks here. You have SummerSlam 02, which elevated Brock Lesnar uh, to a spot that he's uh, really not been knocked off of since in the wrestling pantheon. You have Russellpalooza 97, the masterpiece booking, the, the, the ultimate masterpiece booking of Paul Heyman. And then Paul Heyman as a manager, top to bottom, on Clash 17. I see you working, Jake Dickman. Yeah, very good. Yes, you are. Nothing wrong with that, though. He, he's got a lot of great things to his credit in the uh, world of wrestling. There's something else that wasn't on my list, and I don't know that's on anybody else's list, so I'm okay. just going to throw it out there. All right. Because as far as, like, must do, like, I think of something incredible must do, and I don't know if it's still streaming, make it Memphis. Oh, yeah. WWE, the, the story of Vince McMahon playing a heel for the first time ever in 1993 against Jerry Lawler. If you've never seen that, I highly, highly recommend it. Yes. Especially knowing, like, the, uh, it's like, I'm like, like, 1992, early 1993, I want to say. Yeah. Somewhere around that era. Because, like, for Bloodworks, the WWE champion, she goes down there in the heel. Come for Vince. Vince actually appears at one of the shows, too, at the, uh, Memphis Coliseum as a total heel in 1993. He's cut the heel promo. It is to see something that's an absolute mind warp. <laughs> Mr. McMahon, five years before he actually existed, it, it's some pretty good stuff. Well, here's the thing, too, Jake, and this is, when you look at it, it it's one of these things where we are so lucky in the world of wrestling that nobody could foresee back in the early 90s what was to come with YouTube and everything else like that because... To Vince, this was an itch that he wanted to scratch. He'd always wanted to be involved in the business as a character slash performer, but he didn't want it to get in the way of his day job, which was running the WWF at the time and also being an announcer. So it's like, I'll go down there. It'll just be on local TV. Yeah, maybe the after mags will write about it, uh, but it won't really interfere with other stuff too much. Vince did it thinking it would, it was and always would be under the radar. And here we have it today to watch yeah. on YouTube as a masterpiece. God bless whoever curated in, that into the McMemphis series, because it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just one of those, like, I, I, I debated so much. I actually always debated between that and, and uh, Russell Pope was at 97. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh, my God. I, so I, was, I had to go through the greatest hours of pro wrestling ever. But, like, cause my honorable mention is McMemphis because of, like, so surreal seeing like him send out like all these WWF henchmen to take 
down Jerry Lawler, and then at the same time on WWE TV, Lawler's the jerk commentator on Superstar. Yeah. You're watching wrestling, it's like, huh? Yeah. It, it I, just. I used to wonder if Memphis just didn't get WWF. <laughs> well. I, and I would read in the aftermags about how Waller would go on Memphis TV and say, I'm fighting fire with fire. Those Yankees up there, they're a bunch of jerks that look down on us. So Waller could always explain away whatever he was doing. You know what it was, actually? I mean, I don't know that I want to go down this path. But Jerry Waller, I, I would say 20-plus years ahead of time, was going to the Donald Trump playbook in Memphis. It was it was the the equivalent of owning the libs at the time. I'm going up there and I'm getting them mad, which should make you happy. <laughs> okay. Like what she know with it? I see what she did there. Yes. Yes. It it might have taken me a while to work around to the point, but to the point in the end I trust is one that you got. But <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah, I got it. It's like, okay. Exactly. I mean, even at the time when that was going on, I was always like, you know, because I remember uh, being younger and coming home and like some of the greatest feuds I see would be like um you really start with uh pro wrestling on channel 23 back or like every day at like four o'clock I was just about to ask you that yeah I had fun watching some of the USWA stuff and like it'd be great because you like Monday would be Smoky Mountain Wrestling and be watching Smoky Mountain on Mondays and all these USWA guys would be on there and all, be all these bad guys and everybody would be like you know uh boo and like get these jerks out of here get Tracy Across both promotions, I always used to wonder about that too. As, as somebody who at least knew a little bit about the business at the time, just a little bit, emphasis on of like, why are they sending these shows up to an area that they don't promote in? But I was just grateful that they did. And uh, twenty, oh, yeah. you know, twenty-three was perfect for it. It was one of those quirky kind of things because it was always an ABC affiliate that didn't necessarily feel like it because. Just like the, the kind of stuff that they would carry would just be so quirky, weird syndicated stuff, weird reruns. The only Akron-based station in the market, and uh, again, it, it, it sort of, I think the fact that it was an Akron station as opposed to Cleveland, it, it always felt like more of an independent station. Like, yes, you'd get the ABC, primetime stuff, news, sports, whatever, but in between, there was always room for good stuff like Smoky Mountain and the USWA. Yeah, I mean, and I grew up on that. So, like, I grew up having a little, uh, a little black and white TV, uh, and one of those like little clear see-through TVs that wasn't see-through. And I used to have like the, the UHF and the VHF channels, and I could get in twenty-three better than I could, you know, E five or Channel five. Sure. So, being for them, it was just a cool feature that like you know they'd have news on, and it actually talked on after, and I'd be like, I know where this is. Yeah. Every other news was all about stuff that was nowhere near me. So, it was, like, you know, then it'd be. They have wrestling on every day, and I believe they used to have like WWF Spotlight on, and at like maybe like midnight or two right. a.m. I used to always ask my mom to stay up and watch it. She always told me no. I was <laughs> like, thanks, mom. You were probably right. <laughs> <laughs> and see, it was always the opposite for me in good old Parma, Ohio, at the time, where 23 was the one that would come in fuzzy. But I, I always enjoyed watching 23. It was it was just like had a different feel to it, uh, and uh, the wrestling was only a part of that. For the uh, greatest matches, the three matches that each of us would recommend here, uh, ultimately is just on this one, 
Uh, me, you, and Ron Glasnap. I will start with uh, Ron's one, and we've referenced uh, a couple of these things here uh, previously. Uh, number one on his list was Macho and the Warrior from WrestleMania 7, which I would say is one of the great overachievement matches of all time, probably right next to Hogan Warrior from WrestleMania 6. <laughs> As far as... Uh, yeah, I guess so, and, uh, Macho deserves... Or, 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 is it, or is it props to Macho? <laughs> props to Macho for carrying him. I don't know who gets the credit for WrestleMania six. If I, I understand Pat Patterson laid it out almost move for move, so maybe it's Pat Patterson for that one, Macho for this one, but yeah, Warrior was capable of being one of two wrestlers in a great match, which, I mean, look, that's more than you can say for a lot of people. It might sound like damning with faint praise, because it is, but uh, not everybody can be one half of a great match. Uh, Macho's the guy yeah, that can I make think, it happen. I don't recall when Lex Luger was ever one half of a great match. He worked with some awesome people. He, eh, I feel like that guy's oh, career. I take, back. I take it back. One time he was one quarter of a great match when he teamed up with Sting to take on the Steiner. I was just about to say, yeah, at the Super Brawl 1 in 91. Uh, yeah, that he had, one. That's the only one I can think of. He had a really good no run. Offense, didn't he have a really good, I mean, I'm going to stick up for him, not least of which because he's been a multi-time guest on the show. He had a really good run as a heel in 89, did he not? Yeah. I mean, that was... I mean, maybe I'm discrediting him. You know what it is, though, and I've talked about this on the show before. Well, sure, sure. I found as a warrior, all of a sudden he got loved and he died. paraphrase the man and say that I'm sure he would say that your comment doesn't make the world go round. <laughs> you're picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> I, am, I am exactly picking up what you're putting down. And for anybody else out there, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it any more explicitly than that. Go, go do a Google search on Warrior and doesn't make the world go round and you'll see what we're talking about. But You're going to go down a rabbit hole and you're going to be like, this guy has a Yes, yes, and you'll see you'll see probably video after video of social justice warriors having their heads explode in his comments. He very well might be. Yeah, I don't I don't think they like gay people in parts unknown. So that was <laughs> we are predictably going off the rails here. Uh, I'll. I'll, I'll steer slightly back in the direction of the rails by mentioning that Ron's second pick, he doesn't say which one, uh, but Flair Steamboat. Ultimately, you can't go wrong with any of the ones in the trilogy. I picked one out. I named one of the ones in the trilogy for my three. Uh, Ron also, uh, and I hinted at this before, uh, Ron puts down the first TLC from WrestleMania 17. So your thoughts on it being an empty spot fest of a match, choreographed cooperation, no, whatever. Okay. <laughs> I, know, that's I, think, okay. I think that's just me. I've seen so many 
desensitized to it. Right. And this being the first one ever at its time, it was amazing. I actually prefer the Triangle Ladder match over that match. Okay. But that's just my personal preference. I just like that one better. Um, I thought it was less contrived looking, watching it back. Because they kind of because they hadn't done it before, so they didn't know what they were doing. At this point, they kind of started to get the formula down. Right. Making certain things that became familiar spots in it. Um, that's all. I just like that one show. That's really, and I also am biased to the Hardys and Andrew Christian because you were there. I will. Yeah, yeah I, I can understand that. I will say this: that when when you look at it, I am somebody. This is another unpopular take of mine. Uh, as somebody who didn't see the Michaels uh, versus Razor ladder match one at WrestleMania 10, that's another one that watching it back after I had seen, in my estimation, better ladder matches, I was like, oh, doesn't hold up. So I think that's another take I, I have that uh, Kyle Ross does not share with me. What, that doesn't hold up? The, the original ladder match doesn't hold up? Yeah, yeah. I know he, he his, his disagreement on that is profound. I, I can see your side, I can see your side. I, it's not, um, three years ago, I was like, no, it doesn't hold up. But now I'm like, I actually kind of like it better because it doesn't have all the spots and stuff in it. Yeah. It just happens to be two guys having a match and it's a ladder in the ring. Very they're interesting. To, like, there's not 37 ladders. It's just like there's two guys and a ladder that's there. Yeah. And the ending's so brilliant where Sean falls down and he gets his arm cut and it's done and it's like stuff. Exactly. It's a little bit more polarizing, perhaps, than a lot of wrestling fans might uh, feel than it is. I, I don't think anybody thinks it's a bad match, but there are, there are certainly gradations that some of us feel as far as how great it is versus other things. Yeah. You, you look at my three matches here uh, that I have. It's the toughest match they've ever seen. I'll tell you that. Exactly, when, yeah. You know, when, took, when took off those guys, yeah, nothing but respect, you know. In the, in the old star column, that'd be one of those six stars. <laughs> Courtesy phone Omega Okada and Dave Meltzer. White courtesy phone Omega Okada and Dave Meltzer. <laughs> you can't. Kenny Omega talk for two hours about nonsense. Yeah. Well, you can't mention six stars without getting that kind of reference from me. It's obligatory. Uh, so, by the way, which speaking of snowflakes, there is a lot of them to go around on the three matches that I'm going to name. I said before WrestleMania 17. Uh, and that, again, while the ending, and this is one of these things where, uh, again, uh, profound disagreement between me and Kyle Ross on this, that he felt like the ending not only destroyed uh, the match, but destroyed the show because it, it was one of the worst endings business-wise in wrestling history. I won't disagree with him on that, but as far as, like, in the moment. And, and when we're talking streaming stuff here, I mean, there's different ways of watching stuff, but I think all of us are sort of getting in the moment. And to me, as I said, if you want to see Rock and Austin at the peak of their powers, that's the match there. Uh, because Rock Austin 1 was actually kind of unwieldy at WrestleMania 15. Didn't really live up to the expectations. It was a little bit flatter 
uh, than some people thought. Rock Austin 3 at WrestleMania 19 was pretty good, but uh, there, there was just, to, to, to me, again, and it, had we known ahead of time that it was Austin's last match, we might have looked at it differently. Uh, it just felt like, oh, they're matching them up again, and uh, this time Rock is going to be a heel again. But uh, Rock Austin 2 is my favorite. Uh, Hart Austin 2 uh, is pretty much the only Hart Austin match that anybody really talks about for the most part. The, part. the first match, Survivor Series 96 at the Garden was really good. No question about it. It was really good. But the one at WrestleMania 13 changed the era, basically, because it was really the beginning of the Austin 316 movement as a face. It got him over uh, as a, a monster face. Biggest one in the company since Hogan. And, uh, again, huge match business-wise. So compelling to watch. So exciting. And uh, just really, really outstanding. So, Rock Austin 2, Hart Austin 2. Uh, is this going to be a theme, Jake Digman? I've got a match in the Flair Steamboat Trilogy. Which one do you think it is? Uh, you seem like the kind of guy that would go for the, uh, the Superdome Clash match. Yes. Or the, uh, the Clash match with the Superdome. Yes, Rage and Cajun. Uh, I swear to God, I wasn't going for the second match in all of these ones here. It just worked out that way. That's one of those things gunned to my head. It's the favorite. All three of those are great. Uh, the match in Chicago at Chi-Town Rumble in February of 89, uh, it had the shock value, especially of Tommy Young making the count there. Tommy Young, who he had been led to believe over a period of time, uh, was biased in Flair's favor just because Flair had gotten so many of the cheap breaks from him. But Tommy Young's the one that runs in and makes the count. You have the one in the middle there. You have the big classic where Flair gets it back. Music City Showdown, uh, 89 in Nashville. And uh, you can't go wrong picking any of those three. By the way, uh, I had never known this before. I just saw something on YouTube recently where this was documented. Did you know that WWF at the time did a house show in the same building in Nashville the night before, and they deliberately ran along, and they like there were all kinds of things they did to screw with the preparations for the next day, not least of which was running a show the day before. Yeah, go go look that up, everybody. It's an interesting story. One of these wrestling documentary folks uh, broke it down and got into the details of it, and it's a great story. But I mean, those three right there. I mean, you know. You gotta admit, you can't go wrong with those three recommendations that I have, just like the ones that Ron had. Oh, absolutely, absolutely not. Those are three of the greatest matches in the history of pro wrestling. Um, I actually know what, on one of yours, this is my personal preference. Mm-hmm. Um, my, over time, my favorite of the trilogy with, uh, with The Rock and Austin is actually number three. Okay. Only because what it did represent, if we're talking long term, we've got to, you know, take into, I guess, into account what it did. You know, as far as longevity and everything else that came after it, um, if we're not also looking at it as a bubble in just that match or the overall arc, but knowing that it was Steve Austin's last match and just knowing everything that went through with it, that my favorite rock character was Douchebag Owen. <laughs> I thought he was like, it was, that was his perfect character. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was, it was that show. So at the end, so the crowd, you know, you think they're just eating a point of food, right? So he 
Austin gives him the stunner with the rock gets up and he's like, grabs the microphone and he's like, hey, I'm okay. I'm going to leave and the crowd starts shooting Rocky. He's like, I thought you said you have sucks all night long. So you can chant Rocky, you can chant Rocky sucks. And the crowd just kept chanting Rocky. That is that that is outstanding. Yeah, that that whole thing, and he was great in that character. But I felt like they backed into it completely because The Rock is a guy, and this is somebody I've talked about this on the show over a period of time with Kyle Ross. I talked about it with Sean Oliver when he was on the show. I might have mentioned it with you before, but the the term that I've coined the white meatification of all baby faces of over a period of time, like in 99, Rock was still very edgy as a face, but that kind of eroded because Vince wanted his white, his baby faces to be white meat. And I'm not saying he ever regressed to being Rocky Maivia because that would be impossible, but basically the Rock works best as a douchebag face, basically. And if he's going to be yes. blander than that, then he's going to have to be a douchebag heel because they're going to boo him again. Oh, there's a shelf life, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I think now it's the point now he's just, you know, he's, he's the rock. He's transcends everything. Yeah, very much so. And uh, that was, uh, again, sort of an exclamation point to that era. We were already out of uh, the Attitude Era and into the Ruthless Aggression Era by 03. But that was the end of Austin as an in-ring performer. That was the end of The Rock as a full-time in-ring performer, if you want to call him that, because keep in mind, he, he had come back just for those couple months leading up to Mania, so he was almost sort of a part-timer by then. He would be a complete part-timer after that. Uh, you go to... Uh, interesting. When was... Mm -hmm. what, what, what did you say, the end of 01, when he left to go to uh, Phil Scorpion King? you say that was the end of his full-time run? Because I don't recall really going full-time after that. Well, I mean, it was all different stretches, because, yeah, he missed... A good part of the spring and summer of 01, he came back. It was uh, sort of a continuous run until post-Mania 02. And then uh, he came back over the summer. He came back a little bit sooner than he was going to because of the void of Austin being out. Left again. Oh, yeah, put over, put over Brock and then left. Yeah, exactly. He, he was, I think he was always supposed to be in that match, but as far as the, the previous month's pay-per-view, I don't know that he was necessarily supposed to be in that one. I think that was one where he came back as a favorite of the company. He went away again, and then, yeah. So I think you're right about that, but it's a thing where he was he was a part-timer that could pass for a full-timer leading up to Mania 19. I think that's how I would call it, because he would have prolonged runs in the company. From there on in, it would never be anything more than, okay, this has got a limited shelf life on how long he's back. And you know it was yeah. the end for Austin. So yes, that was that was the closure match of the three, and I can understand appreciating it on that level. Two matches that you have for your three are from the same year, albeit in different companies. Uh, both multi-man matches. One would be very uh, easy to anticipate because it's uh, the favorite Royal Rumble match of everybody of all time. Royal Rumble '92 match. The War Games 92 match, Sting Squadron v. Dangerous Alliance. If I go back to that before, that's the period of time I've done a little rewatching in. And then Money in the Bank uh, 11, the WWE title match with Cena and Punk uh, and all of the... I always thought there was a lot of callbacks in that match to Cena on RVD uh, years earlier, five years earlier, 
uh, at the uh, Hammerstein Center as far as Cena being on enemy turf, so to speak. But uh, three really, really great matches and three completely different types of matches. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I, uh, uh, somebody tried to call my phone and, like, I had to click it real quick. What poor timing. What's <laughs> that? Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, the Rumble 1992, obviously, I mean, that, I think you said it best. And then, um, I'm sorry, Rick, what was, what was the last two? What did you say? So, this part. Uh, War Games... <laughs> Yeah, War Games 92 and Cena Punk from uh, Money in the Bank 2011. Are you going to make any changes? Okay. No, I'm not going to make any changes. Um, yeah, no, I, I stand by those. Okay. Uh, that crowd made that match funny. Right. That, you know, uh, with Cena Punk. Mm-hmm. As far as you get one of the matches all the time to watch, you know, I stand by that. And then my, um, uh, on the other side of it, the, the War Games 92. To me, that's the best War Games match ever. That, uh... And to me, the match yeah how about that how about that and that and I've always felt too that when, when you talk about because when I mentioned earlier about 92 to 93 uh, the changes in the company and really no continuity and that match right there it's it's very interesting this is no fault of that match but this is something I know Kyle and I had talked about previously on the show that when you look at it, so what, three months later, this whole thing, I, I've always hated how when a new booker comes in, everything is so transparent. They just throw out everything that's there before and do it their way. And uh, Bill Watts being determined to put Ron Simmons at the top of the card. Three months later, okay, you had the guys that WCW was telling you were the top five baby faces in the promotion at that time on Sting's team. Ron Simmons, at best, was number six on the depth chart in a kayfabe sense. Three months later, he's world champion. Nice continuity. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that's flawed all of the shows, unfortunately, the BCW at the time. And it's one of those really, it's just sad, because I look back at that with Rose Coven glasses, like, I really won't remember you probably didn't like you. But then it's like, no, you, you weren't very good. Yeah. Let's just bring this in here. But um, they're, uh, it's not... You know, and it's for the reasons you, you just said, but I, I just, and that match, I got to get a vacuum for that one. I don't know, that's why I kind of... Sure, nothing wrong I with that. Matches, I, I tried to think of the matches that were worked on the cards that I picked, too. Sure. Well, and, and, I was trying to, like, diversify as much as I possibly could, which was kind of my goal, bringing some, you know, so what, you that crowd is the best crowd. The uh, Punk Cena is the best crowd ever at a wrestling show. Oh, yeah. Oh, very and, much like, so. Smart Marky one-sided, like... Well, and, and what does it tell you, too? What an indictment of the product. I mean, they can brag about the business that they did in the short term and how it was received in the short term, but there's a, there's a commonality, there's a through line between you putting the, the, the Cena Punk match on there and me putting Mania 30 on my uh, list of top cards. In both cases... It was the people rebelling against what was being shoved down their throats. The, the best business that the WWE has done since the Attitude Era is a couple of instances where it was they were basically booking the promotion as a heel that was completely out of touch from the people, which basically, by the way, was exactly what they were. If I was a promoter, I wouldn't be looking to try to make money off of my own obliviousness. I'd be trying to make money off my own skill as a promoter. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, you know, unfortunately, I think, you know, Dana White's something up a lot, a lot of promoters, including 
sometimes, you know, they'll just see, see, see their own ego, they'll step over a dollar just to pick up a nine. Yeah. And, uh, well, in these instances, again, it's showing that there can be some gems even amidst that. And, and again, as far as the War Games thing, I want to go back to that for a second to, to put you over for mentioning that one, because 92, and this is one of the great things on the network, too, and this was primarily, I think, from that winter and spring, so many great, uh, a lot of times, six-man tags on TV, but combinations of these guys, Sting slash Sting's buddies against the Dangerous Alliance, so many great TV matches of the time, and that's a thing where, again, you and I will look back at 92 and WCW and look at what more it could have been with all of the talent there, both the experienced talent and the emerging talent. Uh, but uh, what it was in isolated instances here and there was pretty damn good. I can tell you that from watching Super Brawl as well. If you just take it for the moments, there were a lot of great moments in 92, particularly, I think, in the first half. Um, I actually agree with you. The reason why I'm on my uh, 2K16 game my like download my downloaded characters, I guess, predominantly consists of like I've got CW, like an ECW roster, and then I've got ECW pretty much from a ninety one until pre Hogan. Yeah. I don't have like, you know but yeah, so and I you know, I just do some fun matchups and then I you know, I uh, was able to you know, to convert the and Jericho there, you get Japan and stuff. So, uh, that's just my favorite era of, of wrestling and I really wish, you know, someone would have done it. I wish it was good. Like, I look back on it, like, enjoying the, the, all of the people who were there, like, eventually, like, roster. Um, at, at the time, since I was a kid, so to me, you know, it was wrestling, so stupid. But, like, you look at the show here, you're like, man, why could this actually been, this could have been so good. Exactly. Like, it, well, and, and I will tell you this, that, uh, one of the, one of the great nuggets from old friend Liam O'Rourke's, uh, book, about uh, Brian Pillman, the great book about uh, his life, The Loose Cannon. Maybe the funniest thing in the entire book when you look at that, and something that sums up that era of WCW and how they were their own worst enemy in terms of how much better it could have been, was that when they broke up uh, the the Hollywood Blondes, which we, we look back on as a seminal dumbass moment uh, in time because of how much more they could have done with any kind of a run together and a, a team that only really worked with a handful of teams and we remember them as being so great. Imagine if they'd have been work, working with some of these other teams over a period of time. It was, according the to the book... Blondes actually, the Hollywood Blondes actually just formed on the episode of Saturday Night that I was watching last night. Very interesting. Okay, yeah. I mean, because it goes from, what, December of 92 and they didn't even call them the Hollywood Blondes until, what, like February, I think. And it was, it was like, yeah, I started watching January of 1993. January, okay, yeah, and that was, and uh, their run was pretty much done by by August, and of course they got scapegoated for the June Clash of Champions uh, rating. Uh, that the uh, the June Clash didn't draw a big rating in Flair's return match, and they got scapegoated. And it was Greg Gagne. If you believe the story in this book, and and Liam's reporting, I think was pretty awesome. So I'll go with it. Greg Gagne who went to them and said, we're going to break you up because you're just not that over. Greg Gagne told them that, Jake. Uh, well, I don't think Greg Gagne had a job. <laughs> like, you talk about a guy, I don't want to, I was watching one of the, uh, I was watching, like, I think it was like, uh, um, Hawkins and Ryan or one of their toy shows. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she did a, and he did like, they're talking about FCW or something, or then he's asking like, one of the dudes, I forget who it was, and he's like, oh yeah, you came 
up under, uh, but did you come up under Greg Gagne? And he's like, did he tell you to throw like this, like you were eating those hot? <laughs> and I was just like, no. <laughs> so I don't know why, but I just, I just lost in laughing. hipsters on the top hipster message boards I'm sure would tell us well you got to go watch his stuff with the high flyers him and Brunzel from the late 70s early 80s I haven't watched a ton of it but I, I haven't seen anything post Brunzel that holds up in Greg Gagne's career I'm sorry trolling Kyle Ross with, but I also believed it. And it was in retrospect, wouldn't Brad Riggins and I know they weren't doing this at the time, but wouldn't Brad Riggins have made a pretty good shooter character at the time? He was legit. Oh yeah. yeah I mean he absolutely was. I, I, I don't I don't know how much money there could have been in that because they, they weren't doing that in the eighties. They really weren't doing any type of, you know, this guy's the real deal kind of a thing. It was basically anybody with big muscles was the real deal. So you know, somebody who was a collegiate shooter wouldn't fit in. Oh yeah, absolutely. And while we're uh, while we're on the topic, you know, we're kind of praising the WWE network. Yeah. Shame on the WWE network for the lack of PWA. There needs to be more. Yeah. Well, like, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, you have all of your stuff up there. Like, I I would love to know the streaming numbers of somebody who went back and watched Raw from like February of. 2012. Well, I will, I will, I will tell you this. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I actually sat and watched the rotting carcass that was Super Brawl three. So I kind of understand why there might not be that much more footage up there. Oh dear God, that was awful. And uh, uh, David McLean was that the guy's name? The guy that was the promoter of the the promotion that came after Glow. Glow was dead by this point. And they were doing some kind of god-awful knockoff type thing with a battle royal with these broads. And, oh, my God. I mean, right. awful, awful show. I don't recall that. Um, however, one thing that is, yeah, I don't recall that one at all, but I was just going to think of a battle royal in WWE Network. Under the Hidden Gem, there's a Legends battle royal that's very much worth watching. Okay. It's not good, but when you see the names that come out in it, you're like, holy crap. Is that like, the... Is that the '87 house show? Yeah, yeah, that's the one that was like. I haven't. I gotta watch it. That's you know what that one's famous for is Lanny Popo saying that that caused bitterness in Savage that he took to his grave because I think they didn't include his dad in that match. They didn't think he was yeah, a big enough star. Okay. Yeah. So I know of the match, but I don't I, know I the match. Yeah, yeah, and that. Uh, okay. I'm afraid I just spoiled it by saying no Angelo Poffo. So for all of you Angelo Poffo fans out there who want to watch <laughs> this stuff on streaming, yeah. I, mean, I don't remember who's all in it. I know, like, Bachwinkle's in it, Lou Fez is in it. Yeah. Um, and so 
Was Buddy Rogers in it? Maybe I don't recall. Chief J. Strongbow's in it. If they, if they did a um, if they did a spot where Bruno was going after Buddy Rogers and uh, and one of the announcers said, "Look at how scared Buddy looks. It looks like he might have a heart attack." That would have been outstanding. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Just get Joey Styles on it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> the three worst foreshadowings of pay per view history. Yes. <laughs> so. Exactly. So there's there's not much AWA on there. I mean, there's some scattered things on there that you can find. Uh, I believe Russell Rock '86 is on there. I, I haven't had the, uh, the 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 bravery to sit through that one. Although uh, Blockwinkle Hansen, just to see how badly that Vern might be able to botch that one, that might be worth a look because uh, Blockwinkle is one of my favorites of all time and. Hanson is somebody that I've always appreciated as a big Haas-type guy who can really go. So, again, the bulk of what's there, of course, is the WWE library, ECW, with all their shows and pay-per-views, WCW likewise. And, and that is where most of our recommendations come from here tonight. Uh, get almost, I think almost everything here can be referenced in some form or fashion. You go back to, again... Uh, the earlier days for, for some of the wrestlers recommended, Daniel Bryan, Seth Rollins, Aleister Black, Asuka. Yeah, you might have to go to other sources if you really want to find some of their best stuff. But just about everything we put over is on the WWE Network and worthy streaming recommendations in these tough times, Jake Digman. Uh, yeah, and uh, look up uh, just look up on YouTube McMethod if you want to check that. Yes. If it's not on there, just Google McMethod. I'm sure it'll pop up on one of those. Videos. Yes. That is the ultimate consolation prize for any of us to put on there. We, we didn't list it, list it on any of our uh, lists here, but uh, the ultimate honorable mention has to be McMemphis. And uh, so, again, I, I love it. We, we always try to give you something a little bit more on this show. So we give you the streaming recommendations in those three categories, a little bonus McMemphis. There's always a real bonus coming through. Whenever you're talking to my good friend, FDH Lounge Dignitary, our MMA editor, Jake Digman, always a little something extra special in there. And, uh, Jake, what a pleasure breaking it down with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, my friend. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this mini-episode of the FDH Lounge.